Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 21. Luke 21, we began looking at Luke's version of what is called the Olivet Discourse because it was teachings that Jesus gave to his disciples as they walked out of the city of Jerusalem, walked to the Mount of Olives, and he sat down to prepare them for what was to come. Luke chapter 21, I'll begin reading in verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Every several months or so, I have a recurring nightmare that comes in two different forms. The first version of this nightmare, in that dream, I'm back in my college days, walking across campus, happily talking with my friends, and suddenly I realize that it's finals. And I haven't studied for my finals. Not only that, I haven't been to class the whole semester. <laughs> There's an updated version of that same nightmare that happens where I'm actually sitting in a worship service like this one, enjoying the worship, praising God, singing, praying. And then as I walk to the pulpit, I realize I forgot to prepare a sermon. You can wake up in a cold sweat after those kinds of nightmares. And I'm sure you have your own version according to your calling, where you're at in life. And if you're living that procrastinating life now as a college student, be prepared for a lifetime of having that nightmare over and over again. You get traumatized by it. It's PTSD from college life. It's a curse upon lifelong procrastinators. Yes, when I was in college, I would admit that I would tend to cruise through the semester, exerting the minimum of effort to keep my grades at an acceptable level, and then rely on that jolt of adrenaline that hits when the deadline comes, relying on adrenaline to motivate me to get my projects done, my papers written, and my finals studied for. Do you know what? Many people live their lives that way. Knowing that a final is coming, knowing that a judgment is coming, 
and yet living blissfully unaware, living for the moment. People know that death is coming. Can't avoid that truth. But yet we tend to block it out. We tend not to think about it. We don't want to plan for it. We don't want to prepare for it. And we just expect that when it becomes obviously imminent, somehow we'll make the preparations necessary to face the end of life. The Bible doesn't want us to live that way. The Bible continually points us towards our coming death, and it continually points us towards the coming of final judgment. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. For Christians, that will be the day of our deliverance because our judgment took place at the cross. Our sins were already punished. There is no fear of judgment day for those who have been washed in the blood of Christ that we just sang about. But for those who reject Christ, the Bible is abundantly clear. They will face judgment. Everything they thought, everything they said, everything they did will brought be brought before the judgment seat of Christ. And as the light of truth shines upon every crevice of their lives, they are going to be shown to fall far short of what God's holiness, God's righteousness, God's justice requires. And they will begin their time of punishment, which will last for eternity. They will spend the rest of their existence under the wrath of God. That's the harsh truth of Scripture. And that's what Luke 21 is about, ultimately. About the coming of God's judgment. It's interesting it comes from the mouth of Jesus. People tend to say, oh yeah, that Old Testament God of wrath. Thankfully, Jesus came along and he only talked about love. You can only say that if you've never read what Jesus said or what Jesus did. Jesus spoke about God's wrath more than any other person in the New Testament. He wanted us to be fully aware of that. Those who reject Christ will remain under the wrath of God. This passage that gives about events that are soon to come upon the people of Israel. But we saw last week actually speaks of two judgments. There's a prophetic foreshortening. There is a perspective here where he talks about God's judgment to come upon Jerusalem and, and the nation of Israel, but it actually foreshadows the greater judgment to come at the end of time. And so we must look at both of those when we read this passage. God's pattern of judgment is to judge first the church, and particularly the, in the visible church, those who profess to serve God, those who profess to be Christians and yet do not live accordingly. Those who say they have faith but do not live by faith. Those who disobey God's word, those who live in rebellion against God even though they may wear the name of Christian as part of the church. He'll bring judgment upon the church first and then bring judgment upon the world. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 4, verse 17. He says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And so he begins with 
the judgment upon the visible church of the day of Christ, which was the nation of Israel. That's what the focus is in verses 20 through 24. There's basically two sections today's passage. Verses 20 to 24 deal with the judgment that came in 70 AD against the nation of Israel when Jerusalem was totally destroyed. And then verses 25 through 28 look beyond that as it foreshadowed the great judgment to come at the end of time upon the whole world. It's interesting that John the Baptist is often called the last Old Testament prophet because he was sent to the nation of Israel to prepare them for the coming of the Messiah. Even though his life and ministry are recorded in the New Testament, he actually is part of the Old Covenant era as he prepared for the coming of Christ who would bring the New Covenant the new, and what was the basis of what we call the New Testament. But what's interesting here is that, in a sense, John the Baptist is already off the scene at this point in Luke 21, and Jesus becomes the last Old Testament prophet. This is before Jesus goes to the cross. It's before he's raised from the dead. But he makes a prediction about the future as a genuine prophet, the great prophet of God. And he tells his disciples what's to come. This fulfillment, the the fulfillment of what's in verses 20 through 24, is not recorded in Scripture. It takes place after the end of the book of Acts. It takes place about almost 40 years into the future when, when Jesus gives the prediction. But it happens just as Christ said. We know that because Roman and Jewish historians have given us graphic details of how this all played out in the history of the Jews. A final judgment upon the nation of Israel, upon the city of Jerusalem, and the destruction of the temple, all of history, I mean, the world thinks it's got its own history, but really all of history is driven by God's plan of redemption for his people. And here you have a very significant moment. Think back 2,000 years earlier, God chose the family of Abraham to be his people. An amazing thing, amazing act of grace that God chose a sinner like Abraham and said, your family will be my people. Your family will become a great nation. I will place them in a a great land and they will become a blessing to all peoples. That family of Abraham, even Abraham himself was promised, his family would go into 400 years of slavery in Egypt. But at the end of the 400 years, God sent a deliverer, Moses, and he led the people out of bondage delivered them to the promised land. And on the way to the promised land, he gave them his law. They were a redeemed people, chosen by God, given the law so that they might know his will and obey him and live in submission to him. And he also gave them the plans for the tabernacle, a tabernacle, a place that represented God's dwelling among his people that was with them always. And then... He judged the Canaanites who for generation upon generation had stored up wrath against themselves because of their idolatry, because of their wickedness. Finally, God judged the Canaanites and then gave their land to the people of Israel, to his people. And then having established them in the land, he gave them their king, David. And the line of David was to be the line that would be forever reigning over God's people. But, as we know from the rest of the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was rarely living in submission to the king and rarely living in submission to God. They broke his law repeatedly. 
Instead of conforming to God's will revealed in his law, they conform to the ways of the world around them, the, the nations around them. And not only that, they begin to worship the gods, the idols of the nations around them. And there's this cycle of disobedience that kept happening over and over. And so God would send his prophets to warn them, to call them back to repentance and faith in his promises and his presence. And over and over again, they rejected the prophets. They even killed the prophets. And then he would send another kind of warning, what I would call a preliminary judgment, not a final judgment, but he would send a nation like Assyria to destroy the northern kingdom and to carry their people away as slaves. And then he'd send another preliminary judgment when he sent Babylon to destroy the nation of Judah and to take the people, the rest of the Jews, away as slaves. And still, they would not repent. Now again, through this entire time, there was always a faithful remnant. There was always a core of people who did believe in the promises, who did follow the ways of the Lord, who trusted in the covenant. There were always a faithful remnant. The true church was always within the broader, rebellious nation of Israel. But throughout the prophets of the Old Testament, God promised over and over again, there's going to come a day where I am done. Where the cup of wrath upon the nation of Israel would be full and the nation of Israel would face a final judgment and God would be done with the nation of Israel. Israel's purpose. God chose the family of Abraham, made them into a nation so that they might represent the kingdom of God on earth. So that the nations lost in their paganism and darkness and idolatry could look to Israel to see what does the kingdom of God look like. That they could look to Israel to what the king that God established on earth would look like. So they looked to Israel to know what the law of God is. And more importantly, that they could look to Israel to know the means by which they might be saved from their sins. The means by which they might have forgiveness through the blood of atonement offered by the sacrifice that God would provide. That was Israel's purpose, to worship and obey God and to represent his kingdom and to call the nations to serve the true king and the coming Messiah. And so what Jesus does here is he announces publicly to his disciples that since Israel has consistently refused their God and his will and his means of salvation, he is about to bring judgment upon Israel. He had already promised this. He had already warned them back in chapter 11, verse 51. He said, the blood of, the blood of all the prophets will be required of this generation. They were deserving of punishment generation upon generation ago, but this generation would experience the final judgment. As he approached Jerusalem for the final week of his life, it says that he wept over Jerusalem in chapter 19, verse 44, and then he says to, to Jerusalem, your enemies will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Already, Last week we saw, he said, that the stones of the temple, not one would remain on the other. And so he repeats that same prophecy, that destruction was coming upon Jerusalem and the temple itself, the very symbol of God's presence, would be destroyed. Having repeated that in, in verse 6, 
His disciples then ask him the question we started to look at last week. What will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Comfort them. And so his disciples say, Lord, give us a sign that this judgment is coming. And then last week we saw he actually gave us a a lot of things that were dark and difficult aspects of world history that weren't signs. He says these things, expect these things. He said it to the generation that would face leading up to the to the destruction of Jerusalem, but also to us, that until he comes again for the final judgment, wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and natural disasters and tragedies, these are gonna be a, a factor of life in everyday, everyday life here in this world, in this fallen world. But here, finally, in verse 20, he does give them a sign. Now again, his focus here is on the judgment upon Israel. In verse 20, he gives them a sign to look for. He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Let me give you a little bit of the history that leads up to this judgment on Jerusalem. 30 years later, during the 60s AD, of course, we know that during the life of Jesus, during the time of the disciples uh, in, in the book of Acts, that, that Israel, Judea, was already under the thumb of, of Rome, all of, uh, an oppressive rule that the Roman Empire had over God's people in uh, Palestine. But it got worse as the century went along. And during the, 19, the 60s AD, the, the oppression got severe. And what happens in any culture when this oppression gets severe, you have uh, uprisings. You have zealots like you had in among the Jews that will step up and try to throw off the oppressive authority over them. And that's what happened. And then in 68 AD, the emperor, Nero, sent his general, a man named Vespasian, to take the Roman armies to Palestine to put down once and for all the Jewish rebellion. Vespasian leads his troops in, they easily conquer the land, and they lead up to, of course, their capital city, the most important city, Jerusalem, and Vespasian starts to set up to lay siege to the city, but he doesn't actually get to the point of laying siege, because word comes, a messenger comes from Rome saying that Nero had died. He uh, actually committed suicide. And so Vespasian has to withdraw his troops, return to Rome, and actually the next year was a bit of a reprieve for the people in Jerusalem because uh, they call it in Roman history, you probably have heard it called the year of the four emperors. There was civil war, there was a battle over power. Finally, Vespasian, that same general, actually becomes the next emperor. And Vespasian sends his son, who is now his general, Titus, back to Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus said to the first encircling of the city by Vespasian, which came a year and a half earlier, because Jesus tells his followers, flee. When you see the armies armies encircling, and that's actually a better literal translation of the verb there, not when you see... uh, Jerusalem surrounded as though it's already happened, but when you see it being encircled, and actually it's when you see it beginning to happen, flee, Jesus says. He tells the Jewish Christians of that day 
That's your sign. Get out of the city. He says, if you're in the city, get out. If you're outside of the city, don't go in. Flee to the mountains, he says. And we know from history that many of them actually fled to a place called Pella and established a Christian uh, establishment there, a Christian community there. It's interesting, you even see here, Jesus has such a heart of a shepherd for his people. He grieves that they will have to suffer as he brings judgment upon Jerusalem because he says, what, you know, he feels for the women who are with child, the women who are pregnant, and those that are nursing young babies, you know, that they, the most vulnerable among God's people, would have to endure being uprooted from their homes and fleeing to the mountains. We know that when Titus came back, History records that he did not allow anybody in or out of the city. Matter of fact, if anybody tried to leave Jerusalem when he had it under siege, they would either put, they would actually put him up to a public crucifixion as a warning to the people in the city, or they would maim them and send them back into the city as a warning. This siege took place during the Passover. That's when it began which means there were thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pilgrims from other parts of the Roman Empire that had come to Jerusalem, Jewish people who came to Jerusalem for the Passover. That's when the siege started, it was after they were all there. That's why the numbers are mind-blowing mind -blowing in terms of how many people died in this judgment. The siege lasted five months. The Jewish historian Josephus says that it was a million people. The Roman historian says it was 500,000 people. I don't know which one is right or if it's somewhere in between. Obviously, hundreds of thousands of people died. And any who survived, and they died from starvation more than anything. Ultimately, the Romans would come in and, and raise the city and, 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 and kill everyone. But there were some survivors, and even the 100,000 survivors were sent out to, as slaves to other nations. And once the, the city was totally destroyed, no Jew was ever, was for, the, for a long time to come, was not allowed to live there by the Romans, weren't even allowed to come back to visit and grieve. It was a total annihilation of the Jewish people. And again, this is significant in the history of redemption because God's focus had moved from the nation of Israel by that point to the church. This period of time is such an important time of transition. Much of the New Testament is devoted to helping us understand what God was doing between the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem is that he, and the day of Pentecost, had poured out his spirit upon the church and established the church as the new Israel. The, the church would carry on as God's dwelling place. No longer would there be a big stone temple where God would symbolize his presence, but God would dwell in the church as his temple. The church would be the earthly representation of the kingdom of God. The church would be the place where you would see Christ worshipped, where you would see God's people living in obedience to him as Lord. It says here, Jesus says that Jerusalem's rejection and judgment would last, it says, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And again, that's the beautiful message of the New Testament is that, is that 
the church would no longer be a Jewish church, but it would be an international church. That people from every nation would come and be a part of this kingdom of God, this visible representation of God's kingdom. Now, let me be clear. The church did not replace Israel. The church is the fulfillment of Israel. The church receives all the promises, the covenant promises given to the people of God in the Old Testament have now passed on to the church, the ones that were not yet fulfilled. The church was God's people now. In the Old Testament, the church was called Israel. In the New Testament, the church is called the church. The church is the new Israel, the fulfillment of everything God promised. In Romans 11, Paul talks about this, and he talks about this transition, and he says, he, he talks about it in relation to a tree, and let me point out only one tree, not a tree for Israel and a tree for the New Testament church, but one tree, and he says that one tree would have the natural branches broken off. In other words, those who claimed to be a part of Old Covenant Israel but did not believe in the covenant promises, they would be cut off, but wild branches would be grafted in. And that would be the Gentiles being brought into the church. But there's only ever one tree. One covenant people. So that's what happens. That's, I just want you to understand the importance of what happens of this transition from Israel as it is finally judged for its generation upon generation of sin and rejection, idolatry, and now God is given those promises and has made the church his covenant people. And so now, in verse 25, Jesus shifts his focus. And this is an important point in this prophecy where he shifts his focus from what happened in the first century at 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed to what is going to happen at the end of all future, at the end of this world. People often say, wow, where is the promise of his coming? And they scoff at the idea of a second coming of Christ because it's been so long since his first coming. But realize that Israel was established through the family of Abraham and that began 2,000 years before Christ. And now we are 2,000 years after Christ. This is just a moment. It's just like a day to the Lord, Peter says. And so the Lord is working out his promise and we are looking for the second coming. And in verse 25... Jesus gives another set of signs for his disciples to look for, for this final judgment and this second coming. And these signs that he gives would be familiar to you if you know the Old Testament prophets or the book of Revelation. It uses these kind of signs in a figurative way, a preliminary way, in some prophecies about preliminary judgments, and then uses it in a final way talking about the final judgment. Matthew and Mark's account gives detail to this. Here he says that the signs would be in the sun and the moon and the stars and the powers of heaven will be shaken. But in Matthew and Mark's account, it says the sun will be darkened and the stars will fall from the sky. So there's some more detail. I cannot explain to you the science of that. I don't know what that means. It just means that there are going to be cataclysmic events in the heavens. The heavens will be shaken. The powers of heaven will be shaken, as Jesus says. It's apocalyptic language. And it speaks of, at the end times, it's not just speaking of some uh, great event. It's actually talking about a restoration of all creation. In 2 Peter chapter 3, 
Peter doesn't use imagery. He actually says it in objective, what we might even call scientific terms. He says, the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And we know this is not some hidden event that only a few people are going to understand because he says that the nations are going to be in distress. That's what Jesus says here. The people will faint with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. The Apostle John gives a more detailed description of the same event and the effect that it's going to have upon the unbelievers in the world. It's an earthquake. And it says, when a big tree sheds its winter fruit, when shaken by a gale, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? There will be no mistaking when it, when it comes. Every eye will see, every knee will bow. In verse 27, Jesus gives the final sign, the last sign that will ever be given. He says, and then they, talking about these nations and all their distress and foreboding, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. The visible bodily appearance of Christ on the cloud, just as the angel said, in the way, same way in which he ascended to heaven, he will return in power and glory. There will be one second coming of Christ, not several stages, but one second coming of Christ, and it will not be secret. In verse 35, it says, if you skip down to verse 35, we didn't read that today, but we'll get to that one next week. In verse 35, it says, it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, Again, John describes it this way. He says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. How will believers respond? If you and I are alive on that day, and maybe we will be, maybe not, how will we respond? Well, Jesus describes that in verse 28. He says, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Judgment was dealt with for us if we believe in Christ at the cross. Christ was judged in our place. He bore the wrath of God. Every last drop of the cup of wrath that your sins and my sins deserved, he drunk it to the depths on the cross. No more judgment. Romans 8. There is therefore now no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when he returns, we will look up and rejoice. Because the fullness of our salvation will have come. The hope that we are to live our lives for. The hope that should get us out of bed every morning. That he is going to make all things perfect. Including us. And we will live in a new heavens and a new earth forever with him, in his presence, looking upon his glory and his goodness and his beauty, his majesty. One last question. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you prepared? Are you living your life in light of that 
second coming. In Acts chapter 17, verse 31, the Apostle Paul says, God commands, everywhere, God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. If you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, that means that his sacrifice in our place was accepted by God. And he is now our risen Lord. He has ascended to the right hand of God. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he will be the one on the judgment seat. It's not going to be some other religious leader. It's going to be Jesus Christ sitting on the throne before whom all will stand. But he will grant to us his perfect righteousness and show that his blood has cleansed away our sin on that day. As 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11 say, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. On that day, you'll lift up your head and you'll rejoice and say, My redemption is drawing near. Live for that day. Live for that day. Live your life as a time of preparation. Don't live for the moment. Yes, in a sense, take one day at a time, be faithful today, but always live with a view to the second coming of Christ because that is your ultimate goal, that's your ultimate hope. Live, the scriptures teach us, and Jesus taught us himself, live as a bride preparing for her bridegroom. What does that mean? Well, it means seeking to be like him, pursuing holiness. When I look at this, the promises of his second coming, it comes down to two missions for life. One mission is to represent your king well in this fallen world, to live a life of obedience to him, to day in and day out fight the good fight, the spiritual battle against your sin, and strive for holiness. That's a big part of why you're here and what you're to be about. The second part of it is to take the gospel to all nations. To, there are, the reason that Christ has delayed his second coming is he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to faith, all of his people. He says, I'm not willing that any of you, any of his elect, any of his chosen people should be lost. He is waiting until all of his people have been brought into his kingdom. And so his patience is for the sake of his salvation. So we continue to live here. I mean, if, if being perfect and holy was his only goal for your life, he could do that in a minute and when he, if you were to die and go to be with him right now. But you're here because there are still people who need to know how they might be saved. There are people all around you that need to know how to not come under his judgment and wrath when Christ returns. So the reason you're still here is you are still to live as a witness by your holiness and by your words to share this message of hope and salvation. 
2 Peter chapter 3 says this, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, and he's talking about this old earth, this old creation, this fallen world. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Therefore, beloved, he goes on to say, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, but is patient towards you that all of you should reach repentance. Let's pray. Father, we don't like to think about the coming of judgment, but I thank you, Lord, that you have opened our eyes to see that it's coming and that you have opened our eyes to see that the cross has provided a way to escape your wrath and judgment. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who have not found that escape, have not found Christ, I pray that you would, through this service, through the, the witness of the people here, through your ongoing work in their lives, would show them Christ, give them faith, the gift of faith, that they might believe, give them the gift of repentance, that they might turn from their sin. And Lord, help them to find the life the abundant life that begins immediately, the victory over sin that grows and grows throughout life, and the ultimate deliverance that will come when our Lord returns. Father, strengthen your church for the mission for which you have placed us here, and may Christ be honored in us and glorified through us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.